Welcome, I'm Dr. Robert Groves, your host for the Groves Connection podcast. The Groves Connection brings you intimate conversations with pundits, providers, patients, leaders, and laypeople, all to help us understand a contradiction. How can our healthcare system be both magnificent and yet so deeply flawed? We're going inside healthcare to talk candidly with those who know. What they have to say may delight, surprise, frustrate, or at times even anger you. But I invite you to get curious and listen to the truth about healthcare and those who want to fix it. Maybe the answers have been there all along. We just need to make the connection. Are you ready to connect? Dr. John Mandrola, welcome to the Groves Connection. Thanks for having me. Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm so excited to get a chance to talk to you. There's so many things that that I want to get into in this conversation, not least of which is uh, your uh, extensive presence on, on social media and the message that you're getting out there. And we'll talk about that later, but I want people to get a feel for who they're talking to. And so I want to start in uh, elementary school. Where'd you grow up? What was life like for you? What were you thinking then uh, about your life? Sure. I grew up in Windsor Locks, Connecticut, which is about halfway between Hartford and Springfield. Um, I, I grew up uh, on the same same uh, uh, yard, really, with my grandparents who were from, you know, second generation Italian. And so they helped take care of us. And, and we walked to school and it was kind of idyllic. And my wife always says that um, I was cursed by having a, a, a near perfect childhood, so it was it was good. And you know, went to went to school and and kind of was a B student, and didn't really apply myself. And my guidance counselor, you know, he took me in and he asked me, you know, what we wanted to do with our lives. And I said that I wanted to be a doctor. And he he sat me down and he said, John, he goes, um, uh, you really have to be smart to be a doctor, and I really don't think you're smart enough. Oh and, wow! Uh, yeah, Mr. Pappas in Windsor Locks, and and he, he really uh, really inspired me. Kind of made me mad, and and um, I went to you know went to college and applied myself, and I found out that if you study, well, school's not that hard. And, yeah. Uh, so that's kind of how it all went down. Now his intention was not to inspire you. I'm guessing his intention I, was. I, you know, I don't actually know what his intention is, but I've always had this thing where people say I can't do something. I've always feel uh, a little bit inspired to do it. Uh, I yeah. think it's, it's kind of a cardiology phenotype. Oh, is that right? Yeah. Yeah. I don't like to make generalizations, but in, you know, we sort of feel like we can do stuff that maybe people think that we can. I, you say you don't like to make generalizations. I don't like to either, you know, evaluate each person on their own merit, but there are definitely personality types and specialties and, and yeah. it, uh, it, it holds true over and over again, not for everybody, but as a general rule. So I, I uh, that, that's interesting. Critical care docs have their own uh, personality type as well. Uh, so how did you make the decision in high school about where you were going to college? It, I'm really grateful to my parents. They really um, supported me and, and took me around. And I ended up, I ended up going to a, a small liberal arts college in New York called Hobart and William Smith College. I visited, I liked it, 
And, you know, another thing happened there that kind of flipped my life is that when I got there, um, I met a, a roommate, uh, Jack Fabian, you know, was from Southern Connecticut. And he took me to uh, he took me to the biology conference on a Friday at five o'clock. And I said, Jack, let's just go out. Let's have some fun. He goes, no, no, no. He goes, we're going to go to this conference. And it was kind of where seniors and would present their research and what they were doing. And we went, I thought, oh, this is going to be boring, boring, boring. And then, you know, this was in the 1980s and the professor, after it was finished, rolled out a big cart of beer and we just <laughs> had a big old party. Of course, the drinking age then was 18 and it was all fine. And and I was just hooked on biology from that very moment. And you know what? Uh, I, I want to put in a plug for small liberal arts schools. I, I went to a small liberal arts school myself, a, a place called Center College yeah. in Danville, Kentucky. Yeah. 900 total student I know body. It. It's my state. Yeah. Yeah, and it was it was one of the most formative experiences of my life. And one of the reasons is I got to participate in so many things. I, you know, I lettered in soccer, which I, you know, I was not skilled to the level that I, a large school would have had any interest in me at all. And I was able to participate in student congress and so many things that I would not have had the opportunity in a much larger institution. So I, I understand that draw of a small liberal arts college, I really do. Yeah. When was it that you decided that you were definitely going to medical school and how'd you prepare for that? Yeah. So when, when we were studying, we were really deep into the biology um, department and, and to be honest, their medical school wasn't really encouraged. We were encouraged to be biologists and to love biology for the sake of huh. biology. And so I had actually gone that route and and interviewed in PhD programs, and and at that time, cell biology and molecular biology was its, was in its infancy, and I actually had um, I had housing at a at a, a graduate program in biology, done my GREs, and and I came home from the summer, and my dad said, you know, Johnny, so why don't you just apply to UConn as a backup medical school, just just in case you change your mind, and and so I did, and and I and I got waitlisted, and. You know, I filled out more and then, you know, UConn sent a letter, you know, about, I think it was in July or whatever, said, you've been accepted. And um, and so at the last moment, I called up the place that I was going to graduate school and I said, I'm going to medical school. So I really had planned to become wow. a, a, a basic scientist in, in a PhD program and, and changed at the last moment. You know what? That's really interesting. And I think it speaks to one of the reasons that you have so much interest in the scientific method and the meaning of the scientific method, which physicians don't often get when they're on the pre-med track. They don't think about it. Yeah. And uh, that's to our detriment uh, as a society, unfortunately. But we'll get into that uh, a little bit here. So what was your, uh, did you go, uh, when you were in medical school, looking at specialties, that whole thing. Talk to us about that. Yeah. So I, I went to UConn and, and um, UConn was a great experience. Uh, the first two years are, are in the classroom and, and actually UConn had been ahead of its time and it had a pass fail system. And I think that, wow. you know, that worked fine. And then we started our rotations and I just got interested in cardiology. Um, uh, and, and that was the era of, of, we just started to learn how to do a little bit more for yes. heart attack patients. When I first started, like I, th I think we were just basically giving him bed rest and and not much. And then as we as I went through UConn, uh, the thrombolytic era came into play, where we were using the clot busters, 
And it was such an exciting time in cardiology. So I would be on my medicine rotation at, at say, you know, Hartford or St. Francis Hospital, and I would sneak away uh, to go run around with the cardiology fellows in the CCU. And yeah. Um. And and then I got you know in 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 medical school, I got really really interested in in cardiology, and I, um, in in a sort of the medicine track, and, and that's that's what I, I knew I wanted to do that, and and that's you know kind of how it all happened because it was such a great time to be in cardiology that was absolutely the golden age of cardiology and i remember cardiology being on the forefront of yeah. having really good studies that proved the value of what they were doing and it, it was really astonishing because in critical care we were still kind of muddling around and trying to figure out what to do and when and and i was a little envious uh you know of of, of my cardiology uh, colleagues because they had evidence and and that was the golden age for for evidence in cardiology wasn't it it really was and and I think I I um, you know as you know from following me I I can be fairly critical of some of the science and an interpretation of science but I have to give cardiology credit we we really been our my uh, our field has been a leader in, in evidence generation and using evidence to guide yes. practice. So that was part of the draw too, right? That we 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 had trials and we had journal clubs. And do you think there's been some drift from that? Uh... I don't know. I I we do a lot of we do a lot of trials and um, we've made so much progress that we're we're getting on this flat part of the curve where people cannot live forever, and yeah. it, it's really. One of the challenges of modern day cardiology is not can we do something, but should we do something? And um, where we're where you know our endpoints used to be mortality, and now we're looking at more surrogate endpoints because it's hard to show differences in mortality because we've already made such big progress. Yeah, no, that's a great insight, and I'd not thought about it specifically that way, but I can absolutely see that point of view. Uh, so uh, now you're uh, in medical school, uh, uh -huh. choosing a cardiology fellowship. How did you do that? Where'd you go? People in Connecticut were staying in the East Coast, and and I, I just I needed to get out. I needed to. I kind of saw this, saw this time um, as a time to just explore a different area. And I, I really loved basketball, and I really loved the Midwest, and I loved the movie Hoosiers. And I just thought the Midwest would be where I wanted to go, and. You know, my dad and I, uh, my dad, uh, it's like an epic trip. We just took this journey in a station wagon across the country, and we interviewed at the big programs, the big internal medicine programs. As you know, you have to do internal medicine before cardiology. Yep. So I interviewed at Ohio State, at Indiana, Iowa, Michigan, Case Western, all of these big, Minnesota, all these big places. Uh, you know, of course, Indiana, um, had a number of leaders in cardiology. It was yes. a big cardiology place, Doug Zipes and Charlie Fish and Suzanne Noble. Um, and so I figured that the best way to get into the Indiana cardiology program would be to be an internal medicine resident uh, there. And so yes. uh, that's that's how it went down. I, I drove a Nissan Sentra uh, across the country and uh, had a little apartment and that was all she wrote. I get a little twinge of uh, envy when I think about that trip across America, looking at programs. I, uh, that must have been uh, a really uh, fun time for you and your dad. Yeah, it was funny because you know you would you would go interview, and my dad would go, you know, uh, you know, mess around in the town, and then I would come back to the hotel, and and uh, uh, right before dinner, we I would type out my thank you letter, and then 
we'd send it in the uh, uh, slow mail, um, yeah. and then we'd drive to another place. Yeah. Uh, now you're at Indiana. You're uh, you finished your internal medicine. You've you've doubled down on cardiology. I'm guessing Man. you had that in mind the whole time in internal medicine. Yeah. But before we get move on for that, was there a particular focus in the lab in cardiology that you pursued? Or? So the, the the first two years of my cardiology was was general cardiology, cardiac cath, these kinds of things. And um, but then you know I had these mentors. I really was interested in reading EKGs and the electrical part. And I had these mentors who were, you know, amazing teachers in electrophysiology. Doc Doc Zipes was there. And I just decided that I loved electrophysiology and the timing of it was that this was the beginning of the ablation, catheter ablation era, that um, our, our EP docs had gone to um, Oklahoma to learn from Sonny Jackman, who was an IU fellow. And so they had just come back and this, this was the heyday of catheter ablation and I just fell into it. Yeah, yeah. I, you know, uh, it is often missed, at least in the lay population, that the advances in cardiology have not been solely about the circulation, uh, that the electrical system, unbelievable advances in managing uh, uh, problematic arrhythmias in the last, uh, gosh, decade or two. Some of the things that I do now uh, as an electrophysiologist weren't even thought of when I was in, in yeah. training at Indiana. I mean, AFib ablation, uh, biventricular pacing, conduction system pacing, these things weren't even thought of. So it was all stuff that I learned after Indiana. But what I got in Indiana was a solid foundation in, 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 in taking care of patients in clinical medicine, but also in also in you know uh, reviewing science and, and and thinking about evidence critically really many of my many of my teachers at indiana were were medically conservative uh, they, they didn't call it that but they were super medically conservative where did you start your practice are you still in the same location or so we my wife and i came down to louisville which is two hours south of indianapolis where we, where the med center is yep. and we interviewed and I'm actually practicing electrophysiology in the same hospital that I started at in 1996. It's a, about a 500-bed hospital, and it's a community, you know, it's a community hospital, but it's a, it's a big, big, big place. And right. Same hospital, same EP lab. Some of the same people, actually, are still there. I, like you, I feel very lucky uh, to have lived through the golden age of medicine. I mean, it, it, it really was, and... Uh, things have changed a lot since then, uh, and and we'll talk a little bit about that. But I, you you used a term a minute ago that uh, that I've been interested in, and that maybe you can help us unpack for everybody else. What is a medical conservative? The way this gets started is I really have to give one of my colleagues, Andrew Foy at Penn State. He's a cardiologist there. I really have to give him a lot of credit because what 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 happened is that we were at a meeting and we were reviewing this paper that was really, really hard to believe. And one of the, you know, one of the journalists there really uh, kind of, um, I would say criticized us for our, for our maybe skepticism that bordered on cynicism. And Andrew got really fired up and he's like, this is crazy. And he, he like typed out this like this PowerPoint bullet list of, of things that uh, we believe. And 
I said, Andrew, this is great. We need to write this up. And he's like, okay, fine, go ahead. And so um, I uh, sort of got Vinay Prasad, who's uh, a, you know, a great yes. friend and a, a really, really forward thinker. And his his mentor, Adam Saifu at University of Chicago. And I mean, we worked on this for a number of months. And basically what a medical conservative is, is not a nihilist. We appreciate the progress in medicine, but we worry that some of the progress that's billed as progress is actually not really progress. And it's more or less uh, akin to a slow adoption process and a critical appraisal of new things. And again, we incorporate new things, but when the evidence is strong and, and really, um, I, I guess that's the gist of it. Increasingly, at least uh, in my view, I see terms like uh, groundbreaking and uh, revolutionary and, and it applied to advances that are not and are not even necessarily proven yet. You know, it's been reported from one center, hasn't been duplicated yet. And as you mentioned, sometimes the uh, the outcomes themselves are difficult to believe. And that should be a red flag. You know, let's take a closer look. You know, Andrew Foy and I have have, have uh, written a paper um, called The Heavy Heart about the the economic burden of low value care in, yeah. in cardiology. And, you know, one of the things that we one of the things that we, we we explored in the paper was the 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 increasing amount of of therapies that are on the flat part of the value curve. You know that you that are very expensive but not much value. It's kind of like an economics curve, and um and so as a medical conservative, we 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 sort of feel like if if we're doing more of this low value care, then that's just going to make the inequities and disparities that we have. Um, even greater. And yeah. and I know some of my colleagues push back on that and will say that, you know, a doctor is about what the patient in front of you and there really shouldn't be any consideration of, of value and cost. But I, I don't quite agree with that. I, I, I think there's a responsibility to to provide the highest value care that we can. And, and that really entails critically appraising the literature. Yeah. You know, I, I remember in training that I was taught the same thing. You are not to think about cost. You know, you should put that out of your mind. What it costs the patient or the the system is no concern of yours. And to some extent, I understand that. But the problem uh, comes when the evidence that's being pushed out to practicing docs is, as you said, marginally helpful. Uh, you know, I, 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 and Vinay uh, Prasad has talked about the same problem in oncology, how so many of the drugs extend life for two months or four months. And I'm not saying that that's bad. I mean, if I have cancer, two months is going to be incredibly valuable to me, but it's not enough. And is it worth the billions of dollars? And even worse, does it prevent companies from shooting for a higher bar? Because they can make billions without moving the bar much at all. Exactly. And I would also add to that, I, I don't want your listeners to think that we're anti, that, that being a medical conservative is anti-industry. It, it, it is absolutely not. We, we believe that in a, in a free market and, and um, we benefit from these kinds of innovation, but 
And we don't think that a company who has a profit motive is a is a nefarious thing. A, a profit. We we say in the paper that it that these things these conflicts don't need to be considered nefarious, but they do need to be considered when you're translating evidence to the bedside. And um, as an electrophysiologist, we I mean I've seen an amazing improvement in what we can do for people because of industry collaboration. And so we're not against that. We just we, we just worry that some of the things billed as big advances are not necessarily big advances. It goes along with another trend that uh, I think we're seeing more and more of, and that's, uh, you know, authors aren't sometimes writing their own papers, that there is somebody often from industry or hired by industry who is uh, putting uh, the best spin on whatever those findings are. And uh, this gets into subgroup analysis and and hedging on you know what would obviously be to a scientist a negative study has now become but if you look at it this way there may be some value and so it ends up getting approved and and that doesn't help any of us in in terms of the equity of the distribution of medical services or even the individual patient who goes at risk for many of these interventions and or procedures, and often they don't understand well enough the risk-benefit that they are accepting in order to in engage with whatever that therapy is. How do we get back to a more rigorous approach to the science of medicine? Two important things that come to my mind is, one, I'm actually very proud to be a co-author on a paper. I'm, the, I'm the, one of the middle authors, but we actually wrote a paper um, these young guys from uh, Chicago uh, actually looked at the literature for spin and the way we define spin. Actually, spin has been defined. Spin is anytime an author um, distracts from a null primary endpoint. So the study has a primary endpoint. This is what we're trying to find. It comes out non-significant. And then in the abstract or in the paper, or even in the title, um, there's there's language that distracts from that. And we found that in an incredible amount of cardiovascular literature. And so one of my goals, one of the things that overrides all the work that I do in my podcast and and in, in my writing is to bring critical appraisal to the masses, to bring critical appraisal to patients, to, to doctors, to uh, now nurse practitioners and PAs and, and to really be aware of spin, be aware of critical appraisal. And that gets to your second point that you made in your comments about uh, being able to truly inform patients about what are the benefits, what are the harms, and and what are the what are the benefits and harms if we don't do this therapy? And and to get to true, uh, I guess I would even call what, what Richard Lehman, a retired GP in UK, calls a shared understanding of medicine, which is even more than mm -hmm. shared decision-making. Mm -hmm. But the, the, the tension is that the more patients understand about things, the more they may not accept what we think or what guidelines <laughs> think is right. Yeah. I mean, if you start showing people the risk reduction from, say, a cancer screening test, we might get fewer people doing cancer screening. And so that's the tension is, is when people understand the incremental value of things, it, 
it changes the calculus. Yeah, and it uh, a lot of important stuff is embedded in in what you just said, and I, I can think of a couple of uh, of uh, notions that come to mind. One is uh, relative versus absolute risk, uh, and and uh, I'll, I'll try to explain this simply. I don't have the background that you have, the training in uh, interpreting statistical studies. But the way I understand it is if you're looking at relative risk, if your chances of dying are one in uh, 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 you know, a million and uh, I reduce that risk uh, 30%, yeah, that doesn't get me very far, right? It's, it's you know 30% reduction from one in a million is still going to be one in some hundred thousands of, of cases. So that's the, the 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 relative risk reduction. The absolute risk reduction would be what's your chances of dying from this and what's your chances after the intervention of dying from this? And it's tiny if the if the mortality is quite small. Is that a, a reasonably accurate way of describing the problem? Yeah, and the, the the tricky part is what you just said. The tricky part is when we discuss risk reduction, it's not untruthful. It's truthful. Right. It's real. Right. But when you're talking about a relative risk reduction of, say, 20 or 30 percent on a very, very small risk, the absolute risk that the patient can expect risk reduction is much, is much smaller. So uh, I think the colonoscopy screening st- study showed a, showed a big risk reduction, and we're talking about 0.15 percent risk to 0.3 percent risk. So the absolute yeah. risk reduction is tiny. But the tricky thing, the even trickier thing I'll, I'll extend it is a lot of times you'll see papers that discuss relative risk reduction in terms of the benefit, but absolute risk reduction when it talks about harms. And so uh, uh-huh. it, it's a very, very tricky thing. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. So these are the these are the tricks that I've learned over the last decade of doing this. And, and none of that is dishonest. It's just... Um, uh, I guess a little bit uh, misleading, or yeah, and it you know uh, the uh, the disinterested observer uh, uh, is really what we need to get to. That that they're not beholden to a pharmaceutical company, they're not beholden to a delivery system. That they are truly free to assess uh, both the outcome and the value in a reasonable way. Now, they have to be trained in statistical analysis. One of the things that shocked me as statistics get more and more complicated and more and more strategies and techniques are used to do that, you can come up with wildly different outcomes on the same data set depending on which statistical strategies you use to assess it. How does that work? How is that possible, first of all, and what does it mean? This makes me so excited to talk about this. First of all, I think that disinterested observer, I call it the neutral Martian. If a, if a Martian <laughs> looked at this data, what, what would the Martian think? And I, my view, uh, sometimes the Martian would just shake his head and be like, you know, like my grandfather used to just shake his head like, what are you guys doing? <laughs> but okay, so this, uh, let's call it flexibility and analytic method. And, uh, you have to give credit to Brian Nosek, um, N-O-S-C-K, he's at the University of Virginia, published this unbelievable paper, I think in 2018, and, and what they did is such amazing story is they had this one data set of European soccer leagues. And their, their question was a social science question. Their question was, um, do referees give more red cards to dark skinned players? And they had this incredibly large data set. And what, what uh, Brian Nosek's idea was, he's going to bring 28 teams of data scientists 
and they're going to ask that one question: Is there is there a dark skin bias towards red cards? And the, and the data teams could analyze the 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 data set in any way they wanted. They could choose the covariates. They can choose the the statistical test. And what's so interesting is they chose like 28 different ways and two thirds of the time it was significant and one third of the time it wasn't significant. And the thing of it is, is when you read a paper in a medical journal, they don't analyze the data set 28 different ways. They analyze it one way. Yep. Your listeners may be like, well, throw up their hands. Like, how could we ever know? (laughs) And the thing that we write in the medical conservative paper is that truly beneficial uh, therapies don't require like huge statistical analysis. They're yes, they're obvious. As a critical care physician, I mean, you, you know some of these things, and and um, uh, you know, uh, opening a closed artery during a heart attack. I mean, it's obviously beneficial, and the trials yes. show that. But I mean, and that's what we're talking about on that flat part of the curve. The steep part of the curve are are things that are you don't you don't require a lot of these. Uh, uh, fancy analyses for. You don't need to go through a lot of statistical contortions when the outcome is uh, clear. Is that uh, another yeah, way of saying? Yeah, like as a regular person looking at, at a study, I mean, if it's clearly beneficial, you can tell. And and I think that there are times when, you know, there are times when statistical analysis help us decide whether something is true signal or noise. Um, uh, but truly beneficial, high-value things are rarely something that are uh, sensitive to any statistics. Uh, the other uh, notion that uh, seems intuitively okay, uh, I, I remember one of your posts, you talked about a, a study that turned out to not be significant, uh, and you said, well, what if we looked at this subset? After the study's done, you say, what if we looked at this? Why is that a problem? Yeah, yeah, that's a that's a that's a huge problem because in science, when you when you learn science and in, 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 as a young person, you you ask a question and you design an experiment to answer that question, and uh, you you then look at the data and and how it bears on that question. But once you've looked at the data. You, you can't just uh, pick out a subset that you like because it's going to be it's going to be likely just a play of chance. I'll tell a, a brief story. When I I practiced in EP for 10 years before looking at any study and before doing anything academic, and I got this wild hair that I wanted to uh, do a study on some of our ablation experience at, at our hospital. And I had this theory that women did worse than men. And, um, and so we we, we got all our data and retrospectively analyzed it. And it turned out that it wasn't statistically significant. And we had this young statistician. I mean, he was so young, Sean, his name was. And I said, Sean, I said, okay, but I, I think if we look at this group and, and, and Sean, you know, I was a cardiologist and, you know, 40 years old. And he looked at me with his face. I'm like, what's the matter, Sean? What's the matter? It's like, <laughs> you, know, you saw a ghost. And he goes, uh, Dr. Mandrola, um, you can't do that. And I was like, Sean, I'm a cardiologist. Come on, I can do this stuff. And so I said, let's call Dr. Mann. And Dr. Mann was my senior partner, and he was in academics for like 20 years. We call up Dr. Mann. We put him on speakerphone. I tell him what I want to do. And he, David Mann says, no, Sean is right, John. You can't do that. I wanted to make a you know a reasonable subgroup 
but we couldn't do it because we'd already had the data. And, you know, the trial, a trial is powered to answer that question. And if you break it up into little data groups, you're likely to get, you know, noise rather than signal. Got it. And, and when you say- another, There's a famous trial called ISIS-2. ISIS-2 looked at aspirin in heart attacks. And um, this Richard Pito uh, from UK, they, they, they showed that aspirin was beneficial in heart attacks, one of the landmark seminal trials. But the editors of Lancet wanted to know which subgroups benefited more from aspirin or benefited less. And Pito said, no, we're not splitting up the data. And Lancet said, okay, we're not publishing the study. So they decided to break it up into certain subgroups, but they added one subgroup by astrological sign. And they found <laughs> out that aspirin was highly beneficial for two astrological signs, but not the other ones, or, or vice versa. And the point, and they actually, they actually published that in the Lancet. And so it, if, you, if you just Google ISIS-2 and Richard Pito, P-E-T-O, you'll find that he showed so elegantly that if you break up subgroups, you can find anything. And astrological sign, of course, has nothing to do with aspirin efficacy. So it's a beautiful well, story. I'm convinced that there's a marketer out there somewhere who's ready to market aspirin to uh, to those two subpopulations. <laughs> yes, astrological signs. You know, it does get kind of daunting uh, if you're if even for physicians who often have about enough time to read the headline, which you have mentioned often has spin in it. Uh, they might look at uh, the discussion or something like that, but, but that's not a reliable place to find out if it was a rigorous study because the discussion can be colored by the same sorts of spin that you find on the headline. More so, so what is a practitioner to do in order to, to do a better job of making sure that they're not getting fooled? First of all, have a sort of prior expectation and understand the forces uh, that are at play here. And it's not nefarious, but you have to understand the forces. And then, and then you kind of have to look at a study. And when I look at a study, I I sort of read I, I read what they did, and and I read the the methods. I read how they did it. And then the second thing I read is the limitations paragraph. Hmm. Some journals will put the limitations in the abstract, but I read the limitations. And then, and uh, you know, most observational studies or non-random comparisons are going to be. You know, we, we didn't have randomized comparisons. The we made adjustments, but we don't really know. And then I look at then I look at the results, and the, the literally literally the last thing I read is the discussion section because you don't want to be biased by it. Is that the the idea? And again, it's not nefarious, right? The right. The, the, the evidence generators are you know they want to find positive findings. They they that it's they're interested in it. They want to do good for society. They want to do yep. good for their career. You don't really get formal training in this. Um, uh, and I think it's just a, a, a practice that um, a practice that you have to get used to. The other thing that I would say to practitioners that's a really good uh, resource is in these guideline documents. If you go to a guideline document and you read the narrative review of the evidence, and if there's some way to blink out these little colored boxes that try and make medicine so simple, and you read the evidence review and you go look at the references, that's another way. When we have um, when we have learners come on our service, like for AFib, we just read the guidelines, read the narrative reviews, don't really look at the recommendations, just read the evidence. And so 
This is one of my huh. goals is to bring this to the masses. What a laudable goal because it's uh, it can get us so far off track if we start. It, it reminds me of the Richard Feynman quote, the first rule is not to fool yourself and you're the easiest person to fool. Confirmation bias, you know, self-interest. These are human being natural tendencies. As you said, it's not nefarious. It is who we are as creatures that... Uh, that we have to fight against or we're bound to fool ourselves. That's the way I think of it. When I started cardiology, we were, we, when we had an MI, a heart attack patient in the ICU who was having ventricular ectopy, uh, arrhythmia from the ventricle, we knew that those PVCs associated with bad outcomes, because there were yes. observational studies that showed if you have this, you're going to do bad. And then we had, on the other hand, we had drugs that suppressed those PVCs. And when I started, everybody got antiarrhythmics if they had yep. this ectopy. And, and this persisted for 10 years. We were treating people because we thought we knew, we thought we were doing the right thing. And then these brave researchers decided to do a trial of antiarrhythmics versus nothing. Yeah. And it turned out that by a factor of three, uh, 3%, we were killing people with these antiarrhythmics. The number, ne the number needed to kill patients with antiarrhythmics, an established dogma, was 29. So for every 29 patients we treated, we killed one by what we believed. And so I'm, you know, when I'm reviewing studies, I have this historical knowledge that one of our major practices that you could not even question ended up being dead wrong. Yeah, well, you know what? It, it It's not the only example. It's a great one. But, uh, you know, think about Zygris, uh, which was very popular for sepsis for a long time. Uh, or you think about bone marrow transplant for breast cancer, uh, a disproven therapy that probably killed a lot of people before we, uh, you know, figured that out. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's not that anybody is trying to do harm. It's just that we have to be very, very careful when we're putting people at risk, the onus is on whoever is suggesting uh, a, a difference in strategy. The onus is on them to prove it. I couldn't agree more. And again, I, I don't want listeners to think that it's cynical. It's just um, uh, you 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 get enthusiastic and you're trying to help people. And I you know um, you have to have sort of the lessons from history uh, uh, that. Again, if we have that, that's a, like a tenet of the medical conservative. You have evidence that this works, fine. But if it makes sense, you should be very suspicious. <laughs> yeah. Yes, indeed. Well, yeah, I, I, I want to be mindful of your time. You've been very, uh, uh, you've been very generous uh, with me so far, and and I, I, I do have a couple more questions that I want to ask you though, and and the first is I want to. I want listeners to know, uh, you know, one of the things that I uh, rely on on a day-to-day -day basis is, uh, uh, first of all, your posts and, and uh, your engagement on social media is fantastic, And uh, but there's something called sensible medicine now, and, and you were one of the co-founders of that. Can you describe what that is and how people can access it? Yeah, so sensible medicine uh, is a substack. It's a newsletter. And um, so you just go to Sensible Medicine uh, Substack and, and it'll come up. And, and um, along with a, a number of colleagues, uh, what, what we thought is to bring sort of evidence, uh, critical appraisal, but also, also one of our goals is to allow um, debate because 
we're we're all fans of Christopher Hitchens, who famously said that time spent in a debate is almost never wasted. And one of the things that we worry about with the uh, journals, with medical meetings, is that there's sort of a, a gated narrative that's that's allowed. And what we propose in sensible medicine, and our goal is to uh, allow debate, not in a cynical way, but in a, in a skeptical way. And so I do a post every Monday about critical appraisal, and and Vinay is obviously an expert, and Adam is a, a, a thoughtful internist at University of Chicago, and we're, you know, we get guest posts from people, and we sort of want it to be a place where uh, uh, people can be sensible and can and be debate, and we can not not we cannot dislike each other for having different opinions. Right. You debate the ideas. You don't attack the people who have the ideas. Right. I, uh... And 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 really, um, you know, the podcast that I host with uh, Medscape called This Week in Cardiology, a lot of people give me feedback and say, John, we can't get that in a journal or we can't get that in a yeah. in a in a medical meeting. Um and, you know, I'm sort of a neutral Martian. I, I have a private practice. I don't have any drug uh, company uh, relationships. I don't do big trials. One of the things that I appreciate about uh, how you do it, John, is you do it uh, in a way that is non-confrontational and just sticks to the reality of the facts. And I really appreciate that. And I'm sure lots of others do as well. Not to say that we don't need folks to be confrontational, because sometimes you need that, you know, to get change. Uh, But I appreciate your style. I appreciate the way you write and the way you present the information. Uh, How else might folks, uh, you know, uh, latch on to all that you write? Is it all on Sensible Medicine now or in the midst? I would say, uh, number one, I'm, 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 I'm pretty active on Twitter. I know people have mixed feelings about Twitter, but I think uh, uh, um, uh, I'm at Dr. John M., on Twitter, and I pretty much uh, there every day. Um, I am a chief cardiology correspondent for Medscape, so I have a column there called Trials and Fibrillation. We host a prod- podcast that comes out every Friday called This Week in Cardiology. I have my own substack called Stop and Think, and I, I write quite a bit for uh, Sensible Medicine, um, and those are, those are the places. Thank you so much for what you're doing to to write the ship of healthcare. Uh, I, I really thought that we'd have time to spend uh, uh, on other specific examples, but maybe for another time. I don't want to uh, unnecessarily take up your time, and I think we've covered the waterfront pretty well. Is there anything else that we haven't talked about that you think is important for folks to know right now? Uh, there's so much, and and I think an, I, I think an hour is good, and I, I think I, I really appreciate talking to you, and I, I'm grateful you had me on. Yeah, well, uh, thank you very much. And uh, with that, we're going to conclude today's session and uh, say so long. You've been listening to The Groves Connection, your connection to the inside story on healthcare, featuring in-depth interviews with those who know. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. If you like what you hear, give us a five-star review to keep the connection going and hit the subscribe button to be sure you never miss a beat. The Groves Connection is produced by Dr. Robert Groves. Original music, editing, and creative direction provided by Alden Groves. Production support, content guidance, courtesy of Janae Sharp and Elizabeth Barrett. Thank you for listening.
The professional ideas and opinions expressed in this podcast are mine and do not reflect those of any current or past employers. Thank you so much for listening, and we hope you'll join us next time on The Groves Connection.